The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We are ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal, including zero tariffs and zero quotas. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policy subsidies social protection, the environment, or anything similar. I think there is a significant risk of what some people are calling No Deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing, and we've been listening this morning to Boris Johnson setting out his plans vague plans, it would have to be said at this stage, uh, have how to deal with the coronavirus in the UK. The chief scientific officer, the chief medical officer with him. Steps include potentially closing schools, cancelling events. A peak infection, in fact, a peak period of infection would be likely to last around three weeks. In a worst case scenario, a fifth of the workforce, one six million people, could be absent from work. But the dominant theme in this, Sebastian, was that the, nothing yet. It's not, they're not going to take action at this point. They're going to see how it develops slowly, slowly and calmly. Yes, although no doubt everyone will be clinging on to those worst case scenarios. You're talking about those six million people. We like to whip up a media storm, don't we? But at this moment, as you say, let's all remain calm, shall we? Right. Well, let's get first of all to the latest in our series of interviews with contenders to be Mayor of London and the elections that's coming up. Joining us, I'm very pleased to say here in our studio is Rory Stewart, independent candidate for Mayor of London. Of course, previously Secretary of State for International Development, Prisons Minister at one stage. Um, And now... an an independent in every sense, no longer MP, but standing, as I say, for Mayor of London. Welcome to the programme, Rory. Um, Let me ask you, first of all, to respond, if you would, to what we heard this morning from Boris Johnson, the plans here, and perhaps reflect on how, if you were Mayor of London, faced with this kind of issue, the virus possibly spreading, what are the kind of things you would be thinking about? The key thing, and I was the uh, Secretary of State responsible for the global, uh, our response to the global Ebola outbreak, And what I learned from that, and as floodings minister, and indeed in a lot of what I've done over the last 20 years, including in Iraq and Afghanistan, is that you need to run those meetings in military style every morning, drilling down into the operational details. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. It says here we're going to have this in place. Do we have it? It says here that if this happens, that will happen. Are we ready for that? What happens if we have to close that ward? What happens if we have to close that hospital? What happens if the tube drivers don't turn up? Not because that's what you think is going to happen. That's the worst case scenario. But you need to plan and prepare and push every day. You need a totally different style of leadership. And what worries me at the moment, and it worries me actually also about our mayor, is that we've got into a style of people making nice comments, 
making nice comments about uh, experts, but not challenging, not pushing, not running things. We need managers rather than talkers. And what about this campaign then? It's a very big field. You're probably the most high-profile independent candidate, but you are historically a Conservative, and there's already a Conservative in the race. So how do you stand apart from the rest? Well, firstly, the Conservative candidate, to be honest, is not very visible in this race. This is about Sadiq Khan, and it's about the kind of leadership that you want for this city. The truth of the matter is this is a miraculous city. It's a great city, but we are facing some significant challenges ahead. Right? That's true about the basic foundations. Homicide rate is now murder rate. It's the highest rate in 11 years. London is not safe enough. If you look under the surface of the tube, it's creaking. There isn't enough affordable housing. And the mayor of London thinks he's going to win this very easily. He can coast through, hasn't delivered for four years. He'll just squeak through for another four years because it doesn't matter he hasn't done anything. And do you think he's going to do anything in the next well, four years if he hasn't done anything in the last four years? You're saying he hasn't done much. I mean, actually, I mean, let, let's, let's be fair to him. For example, in this campaign, he's focusing on something which is crucial to a lot of Londoners, which is rent controls, because uh, London is classically a very expensive city to live in. There are a lot of people who are not on top incomes in this city. And he's been speaking, in fact, this morning, launching his campaign in Hackney, about the importance of rent controls. This is something he is going to push for. He's going to but make sure that so people he's, can he's, he's bluffed you again. OK, well, tell me C how. Classic bluff. He doesn't control that at all. It's got nothing to do with him. It's not remotely within the mayoral power. He's concocted a fight with the central government. Right? What he should have done is spent the last four years building affordable housing. He's got 5,500 acres of public land. He promised to build 150,000 houses. He's barely delivered 20,000. And he's going to try to get out of it by concocting a fake fight about an issue that he has no control over. Why is it a fake Sadiq. fight, though? Because it's surely an important issue, isn't it's it? It's nothing to do with him. It's not within his control. Even if, for some reason, the government were to decide to do it, it wouldn't solve the basic problem. It would just freeze prices to their current unaffordable level. For a nurse or a teacher in London at the moment, average rental price, 105% of your salary. Rent controls would just freeze it at that level. But the bigger point is this. He's fooled you again. You said... It's not fair to say he hasn't done anything. And then you came up with another example of something that he isn't doing and has got nothing to do with him. It's like the fact that he's managed to get a lot of votes out of attacking Donald Trump. Great. But it's completely irrelevant. He needs to fix the signalling on the Piccadilly line. We're looking for a mayor who does stuff, not somebody who talks all the time. What about house building then? Because mayor after mayor, prime minister after prime minister say we need to build more houses, but we never see it. Why is it going to be different this time? Well, the big difference is that instead of selling off our land the public land, the 5,500 acres which the mayor owns, for short-term cash benefits, I would put that in as the mayor's contribution to a mayor's building company, and we would build it out ourselves. Public land, public benefit, and that would provide for nurses, teachers, young families, older people. Pretending, as the mayor does, that you can flog that land off to try to get a short-term cash benefit and then somehow pressure private developers into delivering fake affordable housing is a model that is completely broken and he's failed to do it over the last so four years. So would your definition of affordable change from what it currently is at the moment where it's pegged to market rates? Absolutely. To be affordable, it's got to be linked to somebody's income. Right? The majority of this housing has to be linked to incomes, not to average rents. But London itself being a housing provider, the government of London being a housing provider, doesn't sound very conservative. No, I'm not very conservative. Right? I'm a candidate, I'm an independent candidate. I steal the best ideas from left, right, it doesn't matter. I'm not particularly conservative on this. I'm quite, All right. Uh, what, what about yeah. transport? Because that, that's something you mentioned. You mm -hmm. mentioned about you know, yeah. signals on the Piccadilly line. What about fares? Would you, would you freeze fares? Would you cap fares on we, TfL? We are going to have to 
slightly increase the amount of, amount of money that is paid in general across everything. Slightly. So there is a hole in the budget at the moment. And at least 2% is going to have to be found. That 2% can be found partly through charging things like Amazon delivery vehicles that are clogging up our roads, making four unnecessary deliveries a day to the home. And some of it may have to be found by going after the worst polluters. But my approach to this will be smart pricing where the poorest people and the people who need to travel are not paying more. But the people who are paying more are the people that can afford to pay more. Can, can you explain how that would actually work? Yeah. With modern technology, you now know exactly what a vehicle is, how much it's emitting, where it is, what time of day it's traveling. So if I return to my example, if you put pressure on these people that are clogging up our roads, doing unnecessary deliveries, financial pressure on them, they will cease to congest our streets by doing four deliveries a day to your home. They'll do one delivery a day to our home. My income will go up and will reduce congestion at the same time. Uh, right. What about air quality? Because it's something that Sadiq Khan has been very big on. Um, you talk a little bit about, uh, you talked in the past about hitting diesel vehicles and petrol vehicles. Isn't that going to affect people in outer boroughs with worse public transport who rely on their cars? Perhaps they have big families. I see a lot of these people around where I live and they get very, very angry if you start talking about trying to take their car away or charge them more for it. Yeah, well, this again is where he's getting it wrong. He's going for a one size fits all where he's just going to push the ultra low emission zone out to the circular. And that will mean that families who currently own a vehicle that second-hand car market is worth £1,000 will be forced to buy a car worth six or £7,000. And they need those vehicles because public transport in those areas is very, very bad. Right? This is why you need to move to a much more intelligent system of road pricing. So you don't dump a one-size-fits-all where the poorest people who need their vehicles are going to have to pay more and people who can afford to pay more are polluting more and not paying more. It's a classic lazy policy. All right, let's bring you on to something that's really crucial to a lot of our audience, which is the city, City of London financial institutions. You've said Sadiq Khan hasn't touched the potential of what you can do if you work alongside financial organisations. So come on, tell us what you'd do. Well, I think the first thing is he needs to meet them. The guy hides away in his office. The only way of seeing him is if you go to a red carpet event. He's not very interested in sitting with businesses. If you talk to almost any of the institutions, the city, any of the trade bodies, they find it very, very difficult to just sit down around a table with him and have an hour or two hour conversation. He sends you to a deputy mayor and then he doesn't really empower the deputy mayor. So you need a mayor in place who is firstly prepared to listen. And that's very important because there isn't one type of business in London, even within financial services. The needs of the insurance industry are quite different to the needs of a hedge fund or the needs of a commercial bank. So listen, firstly. Secondly, I believe we should be setting up embassies abroad, London embassies, representing financial services in Brussels, in Paris, in Berlin. And the point of these embassies are to make technical arguments to the European Union around what we need for London. Again, this is another failing. You need a mayor who doesn't just say, I'm against Brexit. Great. I was against Brexit. I voted Remain. But the point now is Brexit's happened. It's the details. It's sweating the details. It's being interested in getting things done. And this isn't rocket science. It's about a character. It's an approach to leading and governing things. But there are also very wealthy institutions here that you're talking about. And you've already been talking about the need to balance the budget, holes in the budget. Should you perhaps um, try and milk these institutions a bit more? No, I don't think we should be milking these institutions more. I think it's one of the great successes of Britain. You don't want to kill, as it were, the goose that's laying the golden egg. There are very, very few world-class things in Britain, and a lot of them are here in London. And they are our universities, our financial services, our digital sector, our creative sector. I would get behind them. I'd make it easier for them, not more difficult. 
And finally, very briefly, we've got to talk about your campaign, Come Kit With Me, probably your most high-profile uh, endeavour. What have you learned from sleeping on the floors of Londoners? Well, I think the first fundamental thing is how important it is for a mayor to get out from behind their desk and do that. It would be like my managing a hospital as a doctor and feeling that I needed to spend a day a week out there doing surgery in the wards because unless I spend a day a week doing that, it's very easy to lose touch. So in a homeless shelter in Bromley, for example, 10 days ago, and by spending 14 hours with 10 men, two women, clearing my bed away at quarter to six in the morning, scrubbing the floors, talking to them, I learnt stuff that can never be learned in a policy presentation about people coming out on remand from prison, about how difficult it is for them to actually meet anybody from the council, and gave me more confidence that I could sort these things out. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look in what else is making the news around the world of politics. Roger, where are we starting? We'll start with the domestic abuse bill because the long-awaited bill will be reintroduced into the House of Commons on Tuesday today for its first reading. It was delayed by Boris Johnson's decision to prorogue Parliament. Remember that? And hold an election last year. The legislation's been broadly welcomed by women's rights campaigners and domestic abuse charities. But some groups are concerned the laws don't go far enough to help children or migrant or BAME women. Mm, That was one of the big concerns, wasn't it, from the prorogue that this would get dropped. So here it is back again and then we've got to talk about another election in may not just the mayorals as we spoke about in the first part of the program the local elections and labor could be heading for a rough time an internal report suggesting that the party is on track for one of its worst results in recent history that's according to the bbc in a worst case scenario labor risks losing 315 seats and control of historic strongholds like sheffield that vote happens on the 7th of may and seats in about 118 councils in england will be up for grabs and pretty patel of course Mm. barely a day goes by now without us mentioning the Home Secretary. She says she's completely rejecting all the allegations against her after it was confirmed that she is being investigated for bullying. The Cabinet Office has been asked to establish the facts and whether Priti Patel has breached the ministerial code. It follows the resignation of the Home Office's most senior civil servant over the weekend. He said she shouted and swore at people. Sir Philip Rutnam now intends to take legal action against the Home Office, saying he's been forced out of his job. That is going to be one interesting case. It is. Well, anyway, it's pretty on to coronavirus and the government's action plan. It warns that as many as one in five people will be off work at the peak of an outbreak. That comes as 39 people in the UK have so far been diagnosed with COVID-19. The government and uh, the document sets out proposals for the police to focus only on serious crimes and maintaining public order. Prime Minister Boris Johnson also said the moves to close schools, encourage homeworking and limiting large-scale gatherings are being considered. It is highly likely that we will see a growing number of UK cases. And that's why keeping the country safe is the government's overriding priority. 
Well, for more, we're joined by Bloomberg's health reporter, John Lauman, and also our senior executive editor, David Merritt. Welcome both, gentlemen. Uh, John, let me start with you. Um, the government predicting 20% of workers might be sick with the virus in the future. Is this is this based effectively on what happened in China, a sense of just the way it works in a given population? So they're not actually uh, predicting that everybody's going to be sick, that that number of people would be sick. I think this is this would have more to do with you know, how many people would be at home uh, caring for other people who are sick? Uh, how many people um, uh, might have to be out for other reasons? They might be self-isolating, might be uh, actually in the process of determining whether or not they're infected. So that's why they're predicting that as many as 20 percent of people might be out of work during this period. I think they said as many as six million people at a time. And David, the economic impact of this could be huge. Well, that's right. And, you know, we really, we saw the effect in the markets last week, the biggest um, decline in stocks since the height of the financial crisis. And uh, central banks around the world talking about the impact, the OECD talking about the big economic impact. Um, you know, all these things being cancelled, big events, um, people not going out of their houses, not shopping like they used to, not going on holiday. You know, we're seeing tourism uh, bookings being slashed. All of these things having a huge knock-on effect potentially in the economy. We've seen some of the data out of China, um, you know, effectively a recession, perhaps, you know, a short and sharp one perhaps, but nevertheless, uh, that economy, uh, the engine of the world economy going to reverse. If we see the same sort of infection rates occurring in the next few months in other countries, around the world, you can expect a similar sort of impact. And certainly some of the things that the government is saying today around the worst uh, extreme uh, cases, uh, such as shuttering schools, 6 million people, we're, we're talking about massive impact. Um, stocks, however, up today. Why? Because, you know, in the face of that, we're seeing some coordinated promises from central banks around the world that they're going to step in and shore up the economy. But the amount of shoring up they're going to have to do is going to have to be pretty major. Uh, now, it's interesting. I mean, David, you mentioned there about you know, people not going on holiday, potentially. In fact, the pr Prime Minister in his press conference was very firmly saying, no, no, of course, uh, people should. And then talking to his scientific advisors, John, I want to bring you this up with you. There seemed to be a moment where there was a distinction between containment uh, the point at which you actually can limit it, and mitigation, which they seem to be saying, well, there'll come a point where it won't make any difference whether you go on holiday or not, because if it is just out there in the world, mixing with people who have it doesn't matter. That's right. Um, so what tends to happen uh, with a disease that's extremely um, uh, contagious, and <clears throat> we don't really, I don't think we even really know exactly how contagious this disease is yet. It, it appears to be more contagious than SARS, less contagious than flu. But then it starts, it's this um, process, what we call the community spread, where you can't exactly tell where the disease is going to pop up. You can't necessarily track it, uh, track contacts and isolate those contacts the way that you do at the beginning of an outbreak like this, when you know exactly who's been infected and who is symptomatic. So uh, I think what they're what what the government is saying is that eventually there, there's a very good possibility that we'll get to this phase where um, we won't know exactly where the disease is going to pop up and it's going to be useless to continue to uh, track cases. But also just the thing you're saying about knowing the scale of it, what they're also saying is if people are asymptomatic, you just can't know unless you test the whole population. That's right. How many people have got it? And that's impractical. Yeah, yeah. So I've been talking with people about this. It, it is totally impractical. And this, these tests that we have right now, they're in short supply. Uh, the um, They're expensive. Uh, it, it takes often days to get um, uh, results returned. They're called PCR tests. They're genetic tests. Basically, they test for certain... Uh, genetic features on the virus. Not everybody can do them. 
Um, there's only a limited number of labs, uh, particularly in poor countries, that can do them. So it's very difficult. And, and actually, uh, the U.K. has already said, look, we're not going to test everybody for this. We're just going to test people who, vi- who fit this specific WHO criteria. The World Health Organization set out criteria for people to be tested. And uh, uh, that includes people who have already shown symptoms. And then, David, I've got to ask you how this interacts with the other big story, and that's Brexit, because you've Mm. got an economic hit from this, potentially, and then people talk about an economic hit from Brexit. And even things like transporting medicines, it's something that people are doing a lot of prep around, and now we see the government potentially, or in fact they are, announcing that truckers will be uh, allowed to work longer hours to make sure these vital drugs can move around the country. So there's a lot of crossover here. There is, isn't there? You know, and and, uh, all sorts of interesting fallout from this. You know, we've, we've had just before this really blew up as a story of course you know the EU and Britain setting out their uh, their different negotiating mandates for the talks and being miles apart setting us up for a big clash potentially over the summer now it sounds like over the summer could be really at the peak of this so does Britain and the EU do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption the idea of another layer of disruption on top of that at the end of this year with a a so-called no deal Brexit WTO Brexit is that something the government's going to be willing to take the blame for that's going to be interesting to see and should should EU negotiators and British negotiators be locked together in a public place well maybe they should just do it over exactly Exactly, video conference. Certainly should be shaking hands, right? I mean, one really interesting thing about it, David, also was was the the, the press conference today. Uh, it did seem, perhaps, in some ways, because there wasn't a lot of detail in it, to be almost a, a gesture back to the accusations that Boris Johnson has simply not taken this. Yeah, seriously. Well, that's right. They're, you know, they're, they're trying to get back on the front foot. You know, there he was, stood there with the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, highly respected uh, doctor, there to kind of add some weight, some heft to the government's plans. Now, you know, he'd been accused of really dragging his heels, hadn't been seen in public very much, um, announced uh, that he wasn't going to have one of these Cobra emergency meetings for three days. Meanwhile, lots of people, Rory Stewart among them, who you've just been hearing from, saying we should be having daily sort of a war footing from the government. Well, today we saw them finally stepping up to that and trying to show that they're on top of this situation. But, you know, Mr. Johnson is getting a bit of a reputation, isn't he, I'm afraid, for being a little bit laid back. And, you know, that is not what we need, of course, in a situation like this when people are really going to start to see major disruptions disruption to their lives. And then, John, we're seeing a lot of people self-isolating, but there's, of course, the risk that there are people who have the disease or are suspected to have the disease who then don't do anything. Are there any powers available to deal with those pesky people? So one of the things that the uh, government pointed out today in the documents that they put out was um, <clears throat> that they have recently enacted laws that would allow them to detain people in the event that they w- were not self-isolating they w- or uh, uh, taking medical advice. And this is something that actually has gone on for years in medicine in cases like tuberculosis tuberculosis, highly communicable diseases that can be, you know, uh, that usually are respiratory. The government has taken on these powers. And I, I, I was interested to find out that actually the UK had just done this. Uh, I, you might remember a few years ago, there was an uh, outbreak of um, uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis that was all over Africa, spread to the United States as well. And some states were able to uh, uh, take these people off the street 
literally, you know, grab them off a bus and uh, put them into a detention facility. And now it appears that the UK has taken on the ability to do that as well. Because there is a great effort at the moment to avoid situations that at least appear, I guess, to make it even worse. I mean, and it's very interesting in this day, but there's been political issues and perhaps some political advantage. I, I saw suggestions perhaps the local government, local elections could be delayed. They're, mm -hmm. they're coming up. Perhaps the mayor elections right. here in London and even potentially the Liberal Democrat leadership apparently could be, it could be delayed as a result <laughs> yeah. of this. So there could be quite a lot coming from this, advantageous and otherwise. Maybe. Yes, absolutely. You know, you might argue with the amount of elections and referendums we've had in this country in the last few years, the public might welcome this as a side effect, perhaps, you know, not being put to the vote in the spring. But no, you know, that's just a sign, really, isn't it, of the extent of the disruption uh, that we're talking about. You know, if we're going to have to delay not only things like sporting events, but actually big democratic um, events like, a, like the local elections, Two, you know, nothing is off the table at this point um, uh, in terms of uh, what might be cancelled. And one last question briefly to you, John. One of the interesting things that did, solid concrete things that came out of this press conference, was talking about three months up to the peak and three months down from it, mm. roughly. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about six months here. Is that a, is that a reasonable timescale? Well, <clears throat> obviously they've been consulting with the top uh, epidemiologists on this. But, you know, if you look back, uh, you know, I, I think back to, you know, for example, swine flu. That took much longer than that. Uh, that was really, you know, I think there was uh, at least two waves of swine flu. There was there was enough swine flu around that they were able to develop a, a vaccine against it before it dissipated, before that, you know, virus really went away. Um, you look at Ebola, that was, uh, or I'm sorry, SARS rather, that was an eight-month process right. of getting through it. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.